Father, we come before you this morning and we lift up our eyes to you. We don't look to any other thing, but we look to the rock that is immovable. And you are that. You are faithful. You are good. We have tasted your immeasurable grace. And we glory in your son, Jesus Christ, who is the savior of our souls. And so we don't come here this morning as though we are something, as though we are great, but we come before you, the one who is infinitely great and worthy of our lives. And so we lift our eyes to you, our rock. And may we lift our eyes to you, our rock, right now. And so we, in this, confess that we are desperately in need of you. We are in need of you in our families, in our homes, in our workplaces, in our schools, everywhere. And so we come worshiping you. And confessing that you are the one that we need this morning. And so we pray that you would work in our hearts. That you would help Christ to be formed in us. That you would shape our thoughts. Shape our attitudes. Shape our faith. May we be conformed to the truth. To Christ our Lord. And may you help us, O Lord, to grow. In shining the love of Christ. That through us the love of Christ would shine forth in and through us. Here as we gather this morning and as we go out from here in just a little while. And so may you help us to shine forth the love of Christ as you call us to do as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that you would increase our faith. And there may be some here who do not know you this morning. We pray they would look to you by faith and be saved. May they no longer linger, but even as they have seen in our hearing that Christ alone saves. And so may you grow us this morning and increase our faith or even lead some to faith this morning, we pray. And so we come to you. We come to your word. May you help us to receive it by faith, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the New Testament letter of James. So last week, we finished our study walking through the book of Esther. Over the last many months, we spent a good time considering the Word of God there. And we found that God, though He was never mentioned in the book, the the presence of God is loud in the book of Esther. Well, today we take our first step then into a new study, into the letter of James, with James chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Now, as you look out over the landscape of Scripture, among the godly men and women that you see there, a common thread among them again and again is that they experience a variety of all sorts of trials. And really, we just saw something of that, didn't we, in the book of Esther? 
We saw that they were distressed. We saw that they were concerned. They were crying out for help in their need. And so we certainly saw that very clearly in the book of Esther. But as you read the word of God, it doesn't take long before you find instance after instance of the saints experiencing all variety of afflictions, of difficulties, of hardships, of sufferings, of temptations, of testings, and of trials. You cannot avoid it in Scripture. It is everywhere, again and again and again. Even in the verses that Megan read just a moment ago from Jeremiah, and we saw, and hopefully you were encouraged by the blessed man who trusts in the Lord. And what was he like? He is like what? Yeah, a tree planted by streams of water. But what did it say after that? What was he like when this and this came? Well, if you remember from the reading of Jeremiah 17, the roots of his tree go deep so that when the heat comes, when the heat comes and when the year of drought comes, when that year comes, he does not fear. Why? Not because the drought isn't bad, (laughs) but because he trusts in the Lord. And because his roots go deep, his tree, what does it do in the drought and in the heat? It remains green and he does not cease to bear fruit. Well, whether you like it or not, or whether you maybe even now are even thinking about it or not, I can tell you for sure that if you know Jesus Christ this morning, heat is coming. <laughs> Trials are coming. Drought is coming and as we'll see here this morning in the book of James that God is at work in them and he is at work in all those things forming and shaping you that you would have roots that are not weak or small but roots that go deep 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 into the faith in God so that even when the heat comes and when the drought comes that your tree will be firmly rooted in Christ and you will not cease to bear fruit. You will abound all the more even when that comes. And that can happen. And so to see this then, let's begin this letter starting with verse 1. May God form and shape and mold us according to his inspired, true, and sufficient word this morning. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete Lacking in nothing. 
Now, as we begin here, the letter of James, if you've ever read or studied this letter, whether you're, you know, you study it for your own personal growth or, you know, you're a pastor, missionary, evangelist, or whatever you are, Bible teacher, you know that this letter is something like a bull. <laughs> and I mean that. It's like a bull. It, it just kind of charges right on ahead. And so James, as we go into this book, what you don't need to expect is something that's light and he kind of just goes off here and there. He doesn't do that. He's not someone who beats around the bush, but he gets right to it. And he absolutely... And perhaps, as we'll see, will make you rather uncomfortable. He does not hold back. When you would maybe want him to even. Could you just please kind of not say it that way? That hurts, you know. And so James will just press on regardless. And so to that, I want to encourage you and even perhaps warn you to buckle up. Because once the gates open in this book, I mean the bull, it just rushes out. And onward until the very end of the letter. And so now as we begin this letter though. James, it comes to us as a different sort of letter within the New Testament. And so I say that because it's multifaceted. There's a, a number of different aspects to the letter, to the book of James. And so categorizing it can be rather tricky which many have found to be the case over the years. It has been called the Proverbs of the New Testament, and I think rightly so, because it is a book about wisdom, and not just a book about any general wisdom, but a book about wisdom, a fear of the Lord in Christ that just kind of encompasses everything, and it is to encompass everything in your life and is to be interwoven into every aspect of your life. Period. And so we see that within James, but we also see that James, he, he interweaves much of Jesus' teachings throughout the letter as well, and specifically Jesus' teachings on the Sermon on the Mount. And we'll even see that here in these opening verses. But if you want to summarize you know, what the letter to James or of James is about, I think this is a faithful summary. And many have said it is a book about genuine faith. Genuine faith. So if you want to summarize it, there's a summary for you. And so it's not a book or a letter like about fool's gold, if you know what I mean. So fool's gold is essentially a mineral that looks like gold, but it's not, right? Hence, fool's gold. You could be fooled to think it's gold when it's not, so it's fake. It's not real. Well, James is not okay with that. He doesn't want to have anything to do with fool's gold. He wants the real thing. He doesn't want to fake. He doesn't want a masked up form of Christianity. He doesn't want to have anything whatsoever to do with that. He wants you to be about following Christ because if you know Christ, you're about following Christ. And he wants every aspect of your life to be about Christ. 
And so he's not about fool's gold. So if you don't like that, then maybe these next few weeks or months are going to be rather difficult for you. (laughs) Because he's not going to apologize. Like I said, he's a bull. (laughs) And so as we begin this letter, then it's appropriate to ask ourselves, what about you? Or even in view of verse 1, what are you? What are you? And so the question here comes specifically in view of that first verse, verse 1. And so there we find out a number of things, some basic things that we need to discuss because it is the word of God. And so we find out right off who wrote the letter. And so as we look at this brief verse, we see the author was James. Surprise! (laughs) But specifically, James, the half-brother of Jesus. So now there are three James that this could be referring to. And if you ever go to a commentary or two, you'll find that they indeed have, well, you would find maybe a chapter or two or even a whole book written on who wrote James. And so I'm summarizing a lot for you right now. (laughs) And so there are three James that this could be referring to, and we can rule out the first James. So that's James, the son of Zebedee and brother of John, because he was martyred around 44 A.D., which was before this letter was written. So it wouldn't be him. We can also rule out the second James, James, the son of Alphaeus. We can rule him out as well because he was basically not known well enough to have been considered the author, though he was faithful nonetheless. And what we do know of James, son of Alphaeus, was certainly that he went out and preached the gospel. But other than that, we don't really know all that much about him. And so this leaves us within with here the James the just or James the half-brother of Jesus. Now, if you remember, as we walked through the Gospel of John maybe a year ago now, I can't even remember when we did that, but it was recently, you remember during Jesus' earthly ministry, James, along with his brothers, what didn't they do? They did not believe Jesus. You'll find that in John 7, 5, which makes it incredible that we're reading this letter right now, right? <laughs> so something changed drastically for James. After Jesus rose from the dead... In God's grace, Jesus, he appeared to James. And we see that in 1 Corinthians 15, 7. You can look it up on your own. And James, along with Jesus' other half-brothers, they're half-brothers because Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, conceived of the Holy Spirit, so they can only be half-brothers, that every one of his half-brothers became followers of Christ. Wow. Wow. You'll find that in Acts 1.14. And so James, after coming to faith in Christ, he went on to be a leader in the church in Jerusalem, and he went on to write this letter that we are studying here this morning. And as we see here also, this letter in this first verse was written to Jewish Christians. And so we get that easy enough from the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Now, and when you hear that, 
as you hear that, don't take that to mean that this book is not for you and me. It's like, all right, well, I'm done with Jimmy. You know, that's what some of the early church fathers called this book, Jimmy. (laughs) Well, I'm done with Jimmy. Well, don't do that because this book is for all of us. And why is it for all of us? Because you know, you know what Jewish Christians are. Well, they're Christians, right? I mean, just like us. They didn't, they didn't find some other way to know God. If I just keep Torah, if I do all this stuff, then God will accept me because he chose us or something like that. Well, that's not the case at all. Go back to when I preached through the book of Galatians and you'll see that again. It is Christ and Christ alone that saves. If they do not look to him, they are not saved and they will not be saved. Christ alone. And so we unashamedly take up this letter for ourselves this morning. Now note in all of this how James begins the letter and you're like, well, yeah, I've seen that. It's awfully a lot in just one verse. Well, yes, but does he say here, as he introduces himself, James the Incredible? Is that how he begins? No. Does he say, you know, James the one who knew Jesus best, being his half-brother and all? He could have said something akin to that. But he doesn't. How does he begin the letter? That's right. His description of himself is none of those things. It is simple and it is this. His simple description of himself is this one word, slave. Slave. Now, as you're looking at your Bibles, you're like, well, I think it's a servant there. Well, you're right. But the Greek word doulos, the word for servant, it means slave. And he's not just a slave of anything, right, or of anyone. He does not list his job. He does not give you his job title. He does not list his family. We don't know all of the various things about his family outside of Mary and Joseph and so on. But he does not give any worldly title. He doesn't give us any of that. What he gives us is he says that he was a slave of God, a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he is. And he would have you know that more than anything else. You want to describe him as something he he wants you to know, I am a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he lived this out until the very end. Tradition holds that he kept preaching Christ until they put him to death. Either by stoning him to death for preaching Christ or by throwing him off the temple tower or perhaps both. Maybe they threw him off and then they stoned him to death because he was still alive. He would not cease preaching Christ, no matter what you would do to him. And so we come back to our question then. What are you? What are you? Could your life be summarized 
gladly by this title here in verse 1. Servant slash or slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Is that what you are? And so what? Another question along similar lines. What will you be known for? What will you be known for? You might be here and you may be a child here this morning. You may be a student here this morning. You may be a college student. You may be an adult. You may be a senior adult this morning. And the question that I'm asking here is the same for you as well. Youth and age is no excuse for not following Christ and living for him. So if you are a child here this morning, if you are a senior adult here this morning, are you a slave of Jesus Christ? Because apart from him, only judgment and hell is coming for you. And so, if you're young here, you need to listen. If you're old here, you need to listen. So consider this. We might aim at all variety of things. We might do this or do that in our lives. But what might summarize your life up to this moment right now, this morning? Better yet, what would other people say summarizes your life up to this point? Would they say, oh, yeah, you know, he or she, she's rather smart, you know. She's educated. He's educated. They're wealthy. Successful. Did you see their house? I mean, did you see their car? I mean, that was a really nice car. Businessman. That's who you are, businesswoman, or even father, mother, churchgoer. What would it be? What would summarize your life up to this point? Friend, if you're here this morning, thinking that church is about making you into a good, morally upstanding person, you are wrong. Church is not about making you a good, moral, upright citizen in America or wherever you are. Church is a gathering of the saints, a gathering of those who are slaves of Jesus Christ and their lives. If you know Christ this morning, your life is not your own. So what are you? May it not be wealthy businessman, businesswoman, whatever you want to put, educated, oh, they have a PhD, oh, they don't have a PhD, or they do this, they're blue collar, they're a farmer. What could it be, or would it rather be that you would be a slave of Jesus Christ and be known for that? And they would forget everything else about you. So what will you, or what are you, 
known for this Lord's Day. And so after this brief introduction here, we have, just like I said, the gates open. (laughs) And the bull rushes right on. And so he wastes no time and he sets before us here a different view of trials. A different view of trials. Now, if you've experienced trials or pain or loss or suffering, which I would imagine pretty much everybody here has in some way or another, then this verse already coming out of the gates is quite startling, isn't it? (laughs) I mean, joy in the midst of that pain, of that trial, of that loss, of that suffering. Well, that's that's asking too much already, James. I'm not liking you. (laughs) You are a bull. But this is why this exhortation is before us right now. You see, this verse is for you. It's for you. He is calling for us not to adopt the demeanor, to adopt the mind and adopt the heart of our flesh, to adopt all of the world and its ways of dealing with all of those things or adopting the devil and his lies and taking them for ourselves. But he is calling for us as he comes out of the gates to have a different view. A view in accord with the reality that we are not our own. With who we are as slaves of our Master and Lord Jesus Christ. And so we need to understand something very important here as we look at these verses. And the first thing here is our theology will affect our spirituality. Our theology will affect our spirituality. Now, I did not just say a curse word for those who hear theology and they're like, oh, you just said a curse word. No, no. If you tell me Jesus is fully God and fully man, guess what you're doing? You are practicing and giving me theology. When you say that the Bible is inerrant, it is inspired, it is the word of God, you are giving me theology. When you look at our church and our church government, congregational and so on, you are talking about theology. When you say that you know Christ by faith alone, by grace alone, through Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, you are talking theology. No curse word here. I mean, woe to us if we think theology, theosology, the study of God is a curse word. And so you will not get James' exhortation here if you do not get this point. Our faith, our belief, beliefs, our doctrines inform our life, inform everything that we are doing. What you believe or don't believe, it flows out of you, whether you like it or not, when trials 
come when the heat comes, when the drought comes. And we see this, right? We see this from the Israelites after the Exodus. While they're there in the wilderness, what do they say? (laughs) I won't tell you all they said except for this, that they basically were saying, God, how dare you? How dare you take us out of Egypt that we would be in this wilderness and be taken away from all the comforts of slavery in Egypt? That's rather ridiculous, but that's what they said. Well, what are you seeing there? You're seeing their systematic theology. That's what you're seeing. But we see a different systematic theology from others in the Bible, don't we? We see a different view from King David as he encounters trial after trial and even being chased after to have his life taken. He says in Psalm 40, verse 1 and 2, he says, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog. And there is his systematic theology. And so you see, your theology will affect whether you're going to do what David did there. It will affect your spirituality. And so if your faith, it is in yourself, it is in your feelings, it is in, in your intuitions, or even in pragmatism, how odd and strange and rather ridiculous this verse will sound. Why? Because we're putting other things before the truth. Before the gospel. You see, our true biblically grounded faith is and does inform our actions, our words, our responses, and our lives. And so, seeing all that, our theology of trials and suffering needs to be refined. Needs to be refined. And so, this verse, these verses, they don't need to change. We do. (laughs) We're not going to go and say, oh, no, no, I'm not going to count on all joy. I don't agree with that. Well, that means you need to change, not this passage. What God is doing is he is reorienting our view of the world. This verse isn't saying trials aren't hard. It's not saying that if you're thinking, oh, well, yeah, that's that's what it's saying. It's not saying suffering isn't hard. It's not saying pain isn't pain. It's not saying hurt isn't hurt. It's not saying the sin-cursed world isn't the sin-cursed world. We're not going through trials after reading this verse and thinking, you know, this is great. I just, I love trials. Can you please give me more? I mean, this is like cheesecake. No, I mean, we're not, we're not looking at this verse that way. We're not, you know, to take this verse this way. But we do need some reorienting, some refining of our theology of trials. 
And that is what this verse is doing for you right now. It's moving us away from the world's view of trials, of going about life as though we are all just a bunch of victims. And you know that's true. This whole idea of victimhood is everywhere. Well, friends, Christians are not to think and to live this way. Why? Because we are not defined by what has happened or what happens to us, but we are defined by Christ and what He has done for us. Reorienting every aspect of our lives under the Lordship of Jesus Christ, whatever it is. Trials, if you know the Lord of all sorts, they are expected. And this is where James comes right in line with Jesus' words. And we see the Sermon on the Mount here. Where Jesus, he said in Matthew 5, verse 10 and through 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you. And utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. What are you to do? Rejoice and be glad. (laughs) For your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So James is playing a similar tune here in these verses. Our faith in God in Christ is to define how we walk through trials and not the trials themselves. That's what he's saying. This is why Paul... As he, if you think, okay, you know, Paul, this guy, he's a wimp. <laughs> he was not a wimp whatsoever. I get every one of us in this room do not compare to Paul. I mean, he's sitting there getting beaten, put in prison. People are betraying him. People are saying false things about him. They're beating him up. They're trying to kill him. And yet he's preaching the gospel. And he writes Philippians, the most joyful letter in all of the New Testament. And what does it have in it but Joy in prison. And so it is that he writes in 2 Corinthians 4, 7 through 10. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. And so it is that he continues in 2 Corinthians 4.16, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. This light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory 
beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. The things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. But we are facing a fallen world ravaged by sin and the devil, yet we are not victims, but we are victors in Christ. Do you believe that this morning? And so it is that we have James's exhortations here. So even as we face trials, verses 2 through 4. And so even in trials of all kinds, you can have pure joy because of Christ. You can have pure joy because of Christ. And this is why James, he says in verse 2, count it all joy. So we get pure joy, meaning all-encompassing, complete, full, pure joy when you meet trials of various kinds. And just to add to, you know, how James kind of is pushing us here, he's not just kind of giving an indicative here like a statement. He is giving a command here, not because we look at trials and we think, man, I sure love being sick. Man, I sure love it when people punch me in the face. Please hit me again. Or we say, man, I love it when wolves rise up within the church and just destroy everything. That is not why we rejoice and have joy. It's a command because there is a joy that we can have, pure joy, even in the midst of trials, because of what? Because of God and our joy in the rock that never, ever moves. Trials do not change God and His purposes, His all-sufficiency, His being our infinite source of joy for this life and forever. And so... We can say with Paul, we don't lose heart. And so even in trials of all kinds, embrace the purpose of God in your trials. Our theology affects our spirituality. God has purpose in the trial you're going through. In his providence, the testing of your faith, he is sovereignly using and working as he has done throughout all of history for all of his children. It doesn't take long to look for this in scripture. We can think of people like Abraham, right? (laughs) And how God tested him when he was told, to sacrifice his one and only son, Isaac. Or we can think of others like Joseph and how he went through trial after trial after trial when he was sold by his very own brothers into slavery, when he was sold to Potiphar, 
and not forgetting Potiphar's wife as well, right? And then he was put in prison and their, their faith was tested. It was purified. It was made stronger through trials of all kinds. And this is true of you and I also. That as you go through trials of all kinds, sicknesses, COVID, whatever, loss, you and I need to embrace the purpose of God in the midst of those trials. So that even in trials of all kinds, the testing of your faith fortifies your faith in Christ. What happens and what God does as you're walking through that trial, that suffering, that pain, that conflict, is he is producing in you a steadfastness. He is producing in you patience, endurance, and he is producing in you a godly fortitude. (laughs) He's working in you that your spiritual muscles, they will not be flabby and weak, but that you would be firm and strong in Christ. You know, I think today, you know, I wonder as we look at David and we say, man, he just went through a lot. Yeah, he was a mess, I know. He did a lot of things that weren't good. But do you know how he became a man of God that was after God's own heart? Look at Psalms. As we as Americans are saying, no, 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 I'm a victim. As we say, no, 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 I don't want any of those trials. I don't want to do anything risky. I don't want to get sick. I don't want to go on the mission field. I don't want to do anything that would possibly put me in danger Friend, we see in Scripture that God calls us to go out and He's using all that stuff. He's using your discouragement. He's using your despair. He's using the loneliness. He's using all of those things for His glory. And He's shaping you that you would have a godly fortitude in Christ as slaves of Christ. And so we look at all that. And could it be that we could count it all joy Because we know what God is doing, even though it is so terribly difficult. And as we do it, James, he commands you again. And what does he command? He commands, let it have its full effect. Not an option. He's saying, do it. (laughs) Command! Exclamation point. Your tree is not to be a tree with roots that falter when heat comes and when the drought abounds. God, he is working in you when you're going through all that. And I know it's hard. I've been there too. He is working that your roots, what's happening is they are going deeper and deeper into Christ 
that you might be solid oaks of Christ-likeness. You may be oaks of God-exalting fortitude. So as you hear all of this, what might you be facing right now? I don't, I don't know. I know some of you, what you're going through, at least from outside of you. you. I know some of that. But let me say that what you're going through, it may be big or it may be small, but I want to exhort you, not because I'm exhorting you, but because the word of God here is exhorting you to see God's purpose in it. It might be that you're sick. It might be that you're discouraged. It might be that you're fearful and anxious or confused or even that you're experiencing persecution for preaching Jesus Christ. It might be a problem at work or maybe you just found out that you have cancer and you only have a few weeks to live. Let me tell you what I told you earlier. These verses They are for you. They're not for the person that is not going through those things. They are for the person who is going through those things. And let me correct myself a bit. They are for the person who isn't going through those things because one day you will go through those things. So if you're saying, well, none of that's me right now, well, you grab hold of these verses. You memorize them. You eat them up. And you let God do his work in you that you would have a theology ready for those things when they come. So take up this exhortation, not because it's easy, but because God is no liar. Joy is not found in you saying I'm a victim and you saying pragmatism or bad theology. But the roots here that go deep are roots that trust wholly in Christ. So that you may be what? Perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Like I said a moment ago, when I look back over my life, I find this to be true as well. I won't tell you all the trials that we've been through, (laughs) but I could, because there's been many. But even so, I've seen God's work in the trials that we have experienced. I can tell you that 100% that these verses are true, that by the grace of God, even as we face trial after trial, when we did not know what was going to happen next, By grace, we had joy. (laughs) We had joy because of God and not because of us. Malcolm Muggridge, he said it well when he said, contrary to what might be expected, I look back on experiences that at that time seemed especially desolating and painful with particular satisfaction. Indeed, I can say with complete truthfulness that everything I have learned in my 75 years in this world, everything that has truly enhanced and enlightened my existence has been through affliction and not through happiness, whether pursued or attained. 
And I think if we sat down together, you, many of you could say the same thing. Some of those times that we went through together, they were trials, but they were some of the sweetest times we had as a family. And so as you face trials of all sorts, and you're seeing all this, most certainly this morning, you and I need to remember him who was tried for us, for you. Christ came, and he did not take up a pillow and redeem you. He took up the cross. Remember the words of Isaiah and what it says of Jesus. Surely he has borne our griefs, your griefs, and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth by oppression and judgment. He was taken away as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked. And with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. You see, Jesus, he did not distance himself from us. He did not distance himself from this fallen, sin-cursed world, but he came and he died for it. He died for you. You may be facing trials today, but consider him who came and was tried for you. Will you trust Christ today? Will you let your theology inform your spirituality? That's what James is calling for. Believe and follow your Lord who is tried for you. Or if you're here and you don't know Christ this morning, believe and put your faith in Christ who came and died for you. Recently, I came across a short story that was a conversation between a robin and a sparrow and it went like this. 
said the robin to the sparrow, I should really like to know why these anxious human beings rush about and worry so. Said the sparrow to the robin, Friend, I think that it must be they have no heavenly father such as cares for you and for me. This morning, whatever you are going through, remember him who was tried for you and know that you have a heavenly father who cares for you and has purpose for you in those trials that you're going through right now. Because he does. He does. So take up these verses this morning and face trials with joy, seeing God's purpose and knowing that God is forming Christ in you. Because he is. Father, I come before you and we come before you now and I pray that every single one of us here and I don't know the trial that they may be going through but I can think of many brothers and sisters in this congregation who are going through many trials some that they will not come back from very likely and I pray for them right now I pray that you would help them even now to take up these verses and to take them up for themselves because these verses are for them and they're for us. May you uphold that saint right now and keep them. May you form them and use them and help the light of Christ and the fact that they are slaves of Christ shine forth from their life even unto death. And so, Lord, may you work, may you work in our hearts and even now may each and every one one of us take whatever trial it is and set it before you and say i believe your word my theology will affect my spirituality because i know you are true i know your word is true i know you are a liar and i remember that christ came and was tried for me and died for me And so may we take these things up this morning. And if there's any here who don't know you, may they follow you and look to the Lord who came and died for them. And know that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So we pray for us as we respond. In Jesus' name, our solid rock. Amen.